want to invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of a heads up. We've got, um, after today, two more uh, sermons from this unique Old Testament book. Uh, So we will finish uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in August at the end of the summer under the sun. And then uh, the first Sunday of September, which is Labor Day weekend, we have a guest coming to visit us, Joshua Chambers. Joshua is on the staff of Training Leaders International. It's the organization uh, uh, together with whom we have a partnership with our region of Sovereign Grace Churches to train train 16 pastors from South Asia. And uh, Joshua was my uh, teaching partner, and I anticipate that we will be teaching partners again uh, in the coming year back in Dubai. And um, he is a a dear brother, and um, we're glad to be able to have him to be able to speak to um, that partnership and impart more vision regarding this. It's a very strategic relationship we have in um, the, with the pastors and churches in our region and training these these pastors from South Asia. And then um, after Labor Day, we will begin a new uh, series of sermons that will take us to Christmas. And this fall, we're going to be giving our attention to um, a portion of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37 to 50, uh, really focusing on a, a particular family, um, a very broken and dysfunctional family, but a family through whom, in spite of their sin and weakness and flaws and failings, through whom God continues his faithful covenant promise and blessing to, um, to bless the nations, to gather a company of peoples of which we are a part of. And so we feel like there is extraordinary hope in this portion of Scripture. And really, in, 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 in a number of ways, it, it's striking to me that it, it seems like a, almost a case study of uh, what we've been seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes. So that's where we're headed uh, the rest of the summer and into the fall. And uh, trust that the Lord will communicate himself to us clearly and powerfully through his word. <clears throat> now, let's let's say that um, you are part of a, perhaps a murder mystery party. Or um, your friends have booked an escape room downtown someplace. Or, or perhaps you're just playing that old board game Clue. When there's a mystery to solve, standard wisdom is to begin with the facts. Starting with what we're certain that we do know, sheds light and perspective on how we approach the things that we do not know. Now, given what we've already encountered in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not surprising to discover that the perspective of the preacher leans toward the counterintuitive. And in fact, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, which is what we're going to give our attention to this morning, it's when we own up to the fact that there are certain things We do not know. Certain things we will never know. 
And once we stop trying to know them, it then changes the way we think about the things that we can know. In fact, I believe that the, the main point of this text of Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6 is it's these very uncertainties of life. The uncertainties of life are meant to have a shaping influence on the certainties of life. It's the things that we don't know that God uses and God intends then to have a shaping influence on the certainties of life, the steps that we take into life. In other words, rather than starting with what we do know, we instead begin with what we know we don't know and we move backwards. Or to say it another way, it's the fixed uncertainties in life under the sun that provide a framework for wise and certain steps forward. Now, I realize that I could have just confused you completely. Uh, it, it's a little weird, but Ecclesiastes is a little weird, right? Uh, just read this past week, Phil Riken, who's a scholar of the Old Testament, he says, Ecclesiastes may be the only book in the Bible that was written on a Monday. Um, so it, it's in light of that astute observation that, that uh, we want to see what the Lord has for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. I invite you to follow along. <clears throat> Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that. Or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. What an astonishing reality it is, O oh Lord, that you would communicate yourself to us through Scripture, through the written word. You breathe it out. You reveal yourself. It's your passion to be known. It's your passion to be heard. It's your passion to be enjoyed for all that you are. And so... Um, we are depending on you now to incline our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. And we're depending on you to make the word profitable in our lives, adjusting us, correcting us, encouraging us, changing us, satisfying us, filling us. 
Lord, we need you. And um, day by day, and with each passing moment, Lord, we're, we're banking on the fact that, it, that you're for us and that your uh, purpose is good for your people. Even in trials and tribulations, even in uncertainties, and uh, we ask now that that uh, your spirit might fall fresh on us and do a work among us for your glory in Jesus' name, Amen. Scripture is God's uh, way of communicating His love to us, and sometimes His word comes gently and and. Uh, comfort in a comforting way and sometimes the purpose of a text is to awaken us uh, awaken us stir us get us up and um, I, I believe this is one of those texts it, it has a bit of a uh, stick the finger right in our chest you know <clears throat> and uh, so I, I, I've been praying that God would would um, communicate himself to us with the strength prophetically and yet with the gentleness pastorally that we need and um and so uh, that's that's my prayer for this this passage for us the, the structure and the content of ecclesiastes chapter 11 verses 1 through 6 is built around three things that that we absolutely do not know there are three things to which the preacher draws attention that are certainly uncertain and the first is this We don't know the future. Life is unpredictable. While there are certain things like, you know, if you look in the sky, there's heavy clouds that would signal rain, trees laying where they fall, um, wind, oh, especially the wind uh, over the plains of South Dakota. These things are inevitable, and we we can read the signs in the sky, and while life normally follows a pattern, Nevertheless, we, we really don't know what's going to ultimately happen. You know, if the meteorologist says, hey, 80% chance of rain, typically it'll rain, but we know that sometimes it doesn't rain, and uh, other times there's no severe weather in the forecast, and we get hammered. The, 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 chi- the, the, the child whom the doctor says has no chance of making it another three months lives for years. Meanwhile, the family with the bright and hope-filled future does not make it home. We don't know the future. Verses 1 and 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. You just don't know. We understand that we cannot know the future as a concept. It's, that's obvious. It goes without saying. But we don't typically make that our standard operational grid. We don't start with the reality. Okay, I don't know this. I don't know this. I don't know the future. Therefore, here's how I'm going to live. Um, I, I have things on my calendar that are set more than a year in advance. And uh, I, I do ma- life mainly from the framework based on the assumption that everything's going to go well. Everything's going to go the way we plan. That, that's how we work. That's normal. Does anybody ever stop and stare at their calendar and consider, yeah, I wonder how many of these appointments are just not going to happen? Uh, 
and would knowing that things on my calendar for October, November aren't actually going to happen, would that make any difference to the way I go about what I'm doing today? We don't know the future. Casts a tint on how we operate. Here's a second thing. We do not know how to do that which only God can do. Right? Goes without saying. There are a whole lot of things that only God knows. Verses 4 and 5. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, in the same way, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So, you know, XL Energy can build wind farms all over Buffalo Ridge, but, but can anybody actually see the, the path that the wind takes? Where, where did the wind come from? How was the wind made? We can get digital 3D ultrasound images of a baby in the womb, but do we really know how cells divide at just the right time and in just the right way so that this part over here is a toe and this part over here is a nose? How does life actually begin? And the preacher is saying that in all the work of humankind under the sun, there are just certain things that only God knows how to do. We can manage, only God makes. And this this uncertainty on our part is huge. It's huge in God's plan and purpose for how we live and our disposition while walking this earth. In Job chapter 38, God raises a series of provoking rhetorical questions. God says to Job, Have you ever commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. Or verse 35, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and then say to you, here we are? And the answer to these questions are no, I don't know, and no. God's the only one who can answer, I know. I can tell you. And God is educating Job and he's educating us regarding this unfathomable depths of divine knowledge compared to what human beings can grasp with our smaller brains and sinfully flawed perspectives. And and really at at the deepest level, I think God is asking Job and us, you know, if, if, if you can't know what I know, then how can you level charges against me based on what you do know? So to know all there is about everything there is to know and to know it in all their ways and at all the right times so that I have every bit of relevant data in front of me. Loved ones, this is the kind of control over the world that the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us. Let it go. Surrender. You will never know. We cannot know. Therefore, we do not have to know. And trying to know or pretending to know is vanity. Folly, not wisdom. Now, there's a third thing that we don't know. 
according to this text. Of course, there's so many more, but these are the, the important ones that the author is trying to press home to us. We do not know how to guarantee success and how to avoid failure. As much as we would like to eliminate all risk, risk of failure, all risk of pain and betrayal, all risk of being humiliated or frustrated, let down, that is a level of certainty to which we will never attain. Verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now, see, you know, you'd sort of anticipate, you know, if, if you sow your seed in the morning and uh, sow the seed in the evening, good things are going to happen to you. And here's this counterintuitive approach. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know whether it's going to grow. You don't know whether it's not going to grow. Plant anyway. Of course, nobody, nobody aims at failure. We, we want what we do to go well, to mean something. We, we want to achieve things. But nevertheless, we, we do not know whether what we do will hit the mark and be accepted or fall short and crash and burn. We have seen that in the, the worldview of Ecclesiastes, namely a worldview of the world subject to, to frustration and sin. Things like great talent plus promising career path plus right company plus the right city and location plus all the right prospects does not always equal success and prosperity. Now what's the preacher's aim in setting before his readers such obvious and, and such stark uncertainties. Is it not the recognition of such categorical uncertainties by which we can be tempted with paralyzing passivity? That's, that's a temptation. If, if you don't know anything, well then, why do anything? That's the way I would, I would feel. In drawing attention to our human limitations and the unpredictabilities of life, is not the preacher, uh, his intention is not surprisingly, not surprisingly to engender fear or passivity or hypercautiousness. Rather, the preacher's aim is that we might hold on to these certain unknowns And make them work for us. His purpose is to produce something in us. His purpose is that given all the uncertainties of life, these things are meant, they are intended by God. They're intended by God through the preacher to have this shaping influence on the certainties of life. He means to get something done. He means to stir us up. 
Living in the light of things we don't know and can't know is intended to inform and give shape to a life of wisdom. Now, next week we'll drop down into what that means in a very focused way, but but for now, here's what that means. The, The things that we do not know are intended by God to draw us into the person and the purpose and the wisdom of God so that we'll do something, so that we will seize this unpredictable life. Carpe diem, take action, seize the day. I was never a a ravenous fan of the PBS series Downton Abbey. Uh, However, I I admit to being a curious observer. Uh, I I found the historical period interesting. I found all the rules and dynamics of social class stratification fascinating. honestly found a lot of the characters <laughs> to be enjoyable and endearing. But it was, uh, it, there, there was one particular episode that left me with a lasting quote, and I use it with frequency. Um, in fact, I had a friend visiting us about three weekends ago that reminded me of the impact that this quote through me had had on his life. And, and, and he, here's where I get it from. There, there was an episode where... Thomas, those of you that are our fans of, of this program, Thomas, he's this annoying and very unlikable footman. Uh, he, he made this terrible mistake while attempting to change the color of his hair. And in his failed attempt at, at dyeing his hair, he's left with this stripe of, of white hair running the length of his head alongside his raven black hair. And to his horror and shame, his appearance left one with this conclusion that poor Thomas was wearing a skunk on his head. Uh, And so life had dealt him this shocking and unanticipated surprise along with its terrifying and unintended consequence. And of course, to the delight of the viewing audience, Carson, who is the hyper-dignified, proper, precise letter-of-the-law butler, on discovering this <laughs> skunk-like situation on Thomas's head, is utterly appalled. And with emotion uh, that, that resembles steaming volcanic fissures... <laughs> Carson says to Thomas, Take steps, man! Take steps! Do something about that! When life is unpredictable, take steps, man! When you're expecting a fastball and life throws you a curve, take steps, man! When you're horrified at what you've done to yourself, take steps! Get that skunk off your head! Do something. Take action. Seize the day. Seize this unpredictable life. And the preacher then gives us some specific actions by which we can take steps. First, take action by diversifying. Or to put it another way, 
do something, but don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's wisdom in an uncertain world. I get this from verses 1 and 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, as a kid, I remember, I remember being puzzled by this, this image of bread being tossed into water, bobbing along, you know, getting soggy and ruined. And I mean, why would anybody ever want to find it again? You know, drippy, gooey, ruined bread, yuck. But what's clear to me now is that this, of course, is a metaphor of some kind. And the metaphor is essentially distribute. Get it out there. Send it. And so in that way, it could refer generally to wisdom, the wisdom of generosity. I mean, you never know when things are going to go bad, so be generous now so that you know, maybe things will come around and go better for you when, you when your need arises. Could mean that. Makes some sense since the metaphor of sowing seed broadly comes up in verse 6. However, the more likely interpretation based on the vocabulary of the original language is that it is a reference to commerce. It's a reference to international trade. And the notion here is, is related to the transportation of, of grain and other produce by ships. You cast your bread. You get it out there. You send it on the water. And uh, you, uh, you send out these resources and these goods and you spread it around and diversify your interests on the water, as it were, and then you wait for the ships carrying those commodities to come that carry those commodities elsewhere to come back with other goods that you will receive in return. Now, the, the point being, there's always some measure of risk involved, even in a wise investment. But as the wise saying goes, nothing ventured, nothing returned. In verse two. Rather than focusing narrowly on a, on a single product or service, the wise investors seeking to, again, broaden their interest. Give to seven. Give maybe even to eight. Do eight things. It, um, and the, the reason that you do seven or eight is because you do not know what disaster may happen. It's the very things you do not know that inform your decisive course of action. So how often do impulsive people lock themselves in without taking into consideration risk management? I, I, I just read uh, this week that there is a global trend, not just a national trend, but a global trend in agriculture of, of massive industrial farming failing more and more in profitability. Now, farming has always been challenged to generate profitability, but these massive, massive, you know, tens of thousands of acre farms are just, they're not generating profit. And, uh, you know, one year they all go all in on corn and, you know, then soybeans are good. And then they all go in on next year in soybeans and then 
corn is good. And they flood the market with their produce. They kill their profitability. And uh, it, it's a fascinating thing. The, but, but the most fascinating part of the story I read is that Amish farmers are consistently able to run profitable farming operations. Even though they work on a fraction of the acreage of these massive industrial farms, and they're only using horses for traction power. And how does that happen? How do they they get a profit out of this every year? Well, it's because they've typically got chickens and hogs and cows and goats and corn and oats and wheat and barley and rye and hay and pasture land and an orchard and a garden and a small pond full of fish. If one commodity fails, there's all these other ones to fall back on. In an unpredictable world, risk is a reality. You do not know all that the future holds. Could be drought, could be famine, could be a war, could be a market correction, could be tariffs, could be some catastrophic illness to yourself or injury. But rather than being paralyzed by fear of potential risk, fear of what you do not know, the wisdom of God is, let that uncertainty serve you. Let what you do not know generate the wisdom to take steps. And rather than simply taking chances, anticipate uncertainty. Let the potential of unforeseen trouble inform your steps. Diversify. If one investment does poorly, it will be counterbalanced by another source of revenue that's doing better someplace else. Now, in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual sense, it is the wise man or woman who is investing everything that he or she has in the life of faith. It's, it's God here who is inviting us to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of Christ. This is, this is not exclusively, not even primarily about money and the marketplace. It's about having a holy boldness to do seven or even eight things to cultivate a deep and vital, vibrant, living relationship with the one who made us. It's taking steps to live for the glory of God. It's seizing the day to spread the gospel and then waiting for God's ships to return. It's making the most today of to pursue wisdom. Remember last week? A a little folly can mess up a ton of wisdom. All it takes is one impulsive act, one rash, unthoughtful word, one hasty decision, one angry outburst. You want to be wise? Take steps. Invest your souls. Invest your souls in the Word. In the Word. Don't treat it like the horoscope, says Rosaria Butterfield. Go deep into the Word. Pray the Word. Practice rhythms of, of life, spiritual life. Invest in spiritual community. Make promises to people. Make a covenant to your missional community. Be generous. Express hospitality. 
Take steps. Take steps in building relational bridges for the gospel. Diversify. Seize the day, which leads to a second step. Take action by redeeming ambition. That is, be bold. Be bold. Take steps, man. Ecclesiastes 11, 3 and 4 is a picture of what happens if we fail to obey the wisdom of verses 1 and 2. It's an illustration of what happens when we're so risk-averse, so spiritually paralyzed and privatized that we just wait and we wait and we wait until every condition is perfect before we do anything. Look at Verses 3 and 4 again. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So again, here the, the metaphor is farming. And farming, of course, is a high-risk venture. You can't control the weather. You can't control the markets. You can't control tariffs imposed by competing nations. But one thing a farmer can control is when he will sow his seeds and when he will harvest his crops. But this particular said farmer, he's just standing there. He's out there watching the wind and uh, he's looking at the clouds and uh, he's not taking steps. And the implication is, is that he's trying to calculate and guess, you know, when he can safely cast his seed and when he can safely harvest his grain. And, and even though there are, this according to Ecclesiastes 3.2. There are God-appointed times to plant and God-appointed times to pluck up what is planted. Apparently, this, this man is, he's just not sure what time it is. And uh, he just keeps watching and waiting and watching and waiting, but never sowing and reaping. And rather than taking steps, he just keeps looking and wondering and hoping for better conditions. Instead of doing what he ought to be doing, he keeps putting things off. There's some, always some plausible excuse, you know. Well, there's rain in the forecast. Or, you know, maybe the weather is going to be better tomorrow. Loved ones, as long as we keep thinking this way, we obviously will never accomplish much in life. At planting time, there's, sure there's the chance that the weather is going to be too dry, in which case the seeds we plant are going to shrivel and die. At harvest time, there's always a chance that a storm is going to hit and ruin everything just before we get everything out of the field. There are some things we just don't know. But here's what we do know. We'll never reap if we never sow. Verses 5 and 6. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So what do you do with what you don't know? In the morning you sow your seed. And at the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. 
last week I, I made a brief reference to Dr. R.C. Sproul. Uh, those of you who are familiar with that name, you know that he's has uh, had enormous influence as a theologian, teacher, writer, biblical scholar. Um, passed away just this past year. And and R.C. Sproul attributes his conversion to the sovereign grace of God and to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3. In his testimony of conversion, he says, I may be the only person on the planet to experience the regeneration of his soul through this particular verse. Ecclesiastes 11.3 If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Kind of piques one's interest, doesn't it? And Dr. Sproul recounts that it was when he was a college student. He's a rebellious, godless young man. But it was a fellow student who, whatever the context was, pointed him to that verse. It was just in the context of reading the Bible and they come across this verse. And R.C. Sproul says that the Spirit of God just came upon him and, and took this metaphor of, of a tree falling and lying in the woods, rotting away as a picture of his own wasted life, his own godless life. And that someday he's going to die, he's going to fall to the ground like a tree, and just rot away forever and ever and ever. And, and, and he came under this compelling conviction by the Spirit of Jesus that he needed a Savior to redeem his deadfall of a life. God used Ecclesiastes 11.3 to generate spiritual responsiveness in R.C.'s soul. No pun intended. And he became inclined through the gracious work of the Lord not to wait. Don't wait. Don't just stand there looking. Don't just stand there wondering, oh, what should I do? And he came alive spiritually. And in his awakening, he was not about to simply observe the wind and think about the clouds and fail to take steps for the eternal good of his soul. He was converted from spiritual blindness to beholding glory in the person and work of Jesus. He was raised from unfeeling deadness toward Christ to treasuring pleasure in Christ. Now, there's a significant spiritual lesson for us in R.C. Sproul's testimony. If the Spirit of God can use such a seemingly obscure verse, if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. If the Spirit of God can use a verse like that in the redemption and the transformation of a soul, then what are we waiting for? Take steps, man. Get that skunk off your head. Take bold, humble, faith-filled steps and take hold of Christ. This is the day. Seize the day. Now, it's, it's here that I feel compelled to revisit this essential truth that I, I, I 
pointed you to last week. Because whenever we are faced with the practical wisdom of a text such as Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6, we are also tempted in probably one or two ways. Either we're, we're, we're going to respond with, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. There's wisdom. I better work on that. I better get going on that. I, I, I know, I need to step up and try harder. I need to take steps. Or we respond with, yeah, I've tried and tried and tried, you know, man, it just... It's just never, it's just not working for me. I'm tired of trying. I'm tired. Tired of being disappointed. Tired, you know, it's just all a heavy load for me. Just, oh, take steps. And, And it's here that I draw your attention again to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. Let this rest on you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who became to us, became to us wisdom from God who became to us righteousness from God, who became to us sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Loved ones, do not be deceived. You are not the source of your life in Christ. God is. And God is the one who made Jesus to be our wisdom. God made Jesus to be our righteousness. God made Jesus to be the power of our sanctification. God made Jesus to be our redemption and our transformation. So loved ones, if you are something more than a rotting deadfall in the woods if your soul has any flicker of inclination and desire for restoration of life in Christ, it's God who's the one who has given that inclination to you. It's God who is stirring up that hunger and thirst and desire in you. It's God who is making that an unsettled reality in you. And you can be through faith in Christ joined to Christ, united with the risen Christ. And the life that you now live, you live in Christ, by Christ, with Christ. You're not alone. Jesus is in you to help you, 
This is the most astonishing truth that we do know, we can be certain of, is that Jesus is not just our Savior. Jesus is with us, in us, exerting His influence, supplying the power, ability, directing, animating, helping, energizing, living His life in us. All by His very real presence. Oh, but I've resisted Him. I've failed Him. I've turned away from Him. We all do. This is the reality of remaining sin. That's why it's His righteousness, not ours. It's His righteousness that is our access to the Father, not ours. Yes, we put out the Spirit of the fire of His Spirit. Yes, we step away from fellowship and intimacy with Him. But once He has made us His own, He will never let us go and all will be well in the end. We're no longer enemies. He's brought us to His table. And the very way that He keeps us and holds us and lives in us and helps us is by supplying wisdom to us. And if what we need is wisdom and virtue, and spiritual awakening, and goodness, and progress, we get it from Jesus. So turn, and come, and welcome to Jesus, and find wisdom for your souls. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I I pray for the ones who may be just uh, watching the sky and the clouds go by today. Just a spiritual passivity, waiting somehow like something's going to happen not sure what it is but fundamentally passive and I, and I pray that your word to those souls would be take steps take steps take hold of Christ Go all in. Go all in. Scatter your seed. Send out your ships. Get everything that you can from wherever you can. For those who are like deadfall in the woods, rotting, oh Lord, we turn to You to make things live. We don't know how to make tissue come into life in a womb. That, that's you. you. You do that. We can't make spiritual birth happen. That's what you do. And so we turn to you and pray, Lord, we're trusting you. 
We're depending on you to give spiritual birth, spiritual rebirth, spiritual life and awakening. We're depending on you. We turn to you for this work. Calling on your name. Calling on your name. Trusting, Lord, that that all who call on your name will be saved, will be awakened, will be forgiven, will be restored to fellowship with you. We trust you, Lord. And in this moment, we pray, help us where our faith is weak. We believe you, Lord. Help our unbelief. Draw us to Yourself, Lord, gently, decisively, powerfully. Live Your life in us, Lord Jesus. Live Your life in us. Impart wisdom. Impart faith. Impart repentance. What a gift that would be. Bless us with the assurance that we are counted righteous in You, Before the Father, send forth your sanctifying spirit and change us, rescue us, deliver us, heal us, renew us, revive us. Oh, Lord, do a great work, a work that we cannot accomplish. Only you can accomplish. We turn to you. Asking these things in Jesus' name. Amen.